Chapter Seven of A Popular History of Ireland, Book Six by Thomas Darcy McGee. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Seven Continued Division and Decline of the English Interest. Richard, Duke of York, Lord Lieutenant. Civil War again in England. Execution of the Earl of Desmond. Ascendancy of the Kildare Geraldines. We have already described the limits to which the Pale was circumscribed at the beginning of the fourteenth century. The fortunes of that inconsiderable settlement during the following century hardly rise to the level of historical importance, nor would the recital of them be at all readable but for the ultimate consequences which ensued from the preservation of those last remains of foreign power in the island. On that account, however, we have to consult the barren annals of the Pale through the intermediate period, that we may make clear the accidents by which it was preserved from destruction, and enabled to play a part in after times, undreamt of and inconceivable, to those who tolerated its existence in the ages of which we speak. On the northern coasts of Ireland the co-operation of the friendly Scots with the native Irish had long been a source of anxiety to the palesmen. In the year 1404, Dongan, Bishop of Derry, and Sir Genico Artois were appointed commissioners by Henry IV, to conclude a permanent peace with MacDonald, Lord of the Isles, but, notwithstanding that form was then gone through during all the reigns of the Lancastrian kings, evidence of the Hiberno-Scotch alliance being still in existence constantly recurs. In the year 1430 an address or petition of the Dublin Council to the king sets forth that the enemies and rebels, aided by the Scots, had conquered or rendered tributary almost every part of the country, except the county of Dublin. The presence of Henry V in Ireland had been urgently solicited by his lieges in that kingdom, but without effect. The hero of Agincourt, having set his heart upon the conquest of France, left Ireland to his lieutenants and their deputies. Nor could his attention be aroused to the English interest in that country, even by the formal declaration of the Speaker of the English Parliament, that the greater part of the lordship of Ireland had been conquered by the natives. The comparatively new family of Talbot, sustained by the influence of the great Earl of Shrewsbury, now Seneschal of France, had risen to the highest pitch of influence. When, on the accession of Henry the Sixth, Edward Mortimer, Earl of March, was appointed Lord Lieutenant, and Dauncey, Bishop of Meath, his deputy, Talbot, Archbishop of Dublin, and Lord Chancellor, refused to acknowledge Dauncey's pretensions, because his commission was given under the private seal of Lord Mortimer. Having effected his object in this instance, the archbishop directed his subsequent attacks against the house of Ormond, the chief favourites of the king, or rather of the council, in that reign. In 1441, at a Dublin parliament, messengers were appointed to convey certain articles to the king, the purport of which was to prevent the Earl of Ormond from being made Lord Lieutenant, alleging against him many misdemeanours in his former administration, and praying that some mighty Lord of England might be named to that office to execute the laws more effectually than any Irishman ever did or ever will do. This attempt to destroy the influence of Ormond led to an alliance between that Earl and Sir James, afterwards seventh Earl of Desmond. Sir James was son of Gerald, fourth Earl, distinguished as the Rhymer or Magician, by the Lady Eleanor Butler, daughter of the second Earl of Ormond. He stood, therefore, in the relation of cousin to the cotemporary head of the Butler family. When his nephew Thomas openly violated the statute of Kilkenny by marrying the beautiful Catherine McCormick, the ambitious and intriguing Sir James, anxious to enforce that statute, found a ready seconder in Ormond. 
Earl Thomas, forced to quit the country, died in exile at Rouen in France, and Sir James, after many intrigues and negotiations, obtained the title and estates. For once the necessities of Desmond and Ormond united these houses, but the money of the English Archbishop of Dublin, backed by the influence of his illustrious brother, proved equal to them both. In the first twenty-five years of the reign of Henry the Sixth, fourteen twenty-two to fourteen forty-seven, Ormond was five times deputy or lieutenant, and Talbot five times deputy, Lord Justice or Lord Commissioner. Their factious controversy culminated with the Articles adopted in fourteen forty-one, which altogether failed of the intended effect. Ormond was reappointed two years afterwards to his old office. Nor was it till fourteen forty-six when the Earl of Shrewsbury was a third time sent over, that the Talbots had any substantial advantage over their rivals. The recall of the Earl for service in France, and the death of the Archbishop two years later, though it deprived the party they formed of a resident leader, did not lead to its dissolution. Bound together by common interests and dangers, their action may be traced in opposition to the Geraldines, through the remaining years of Henry the Sixth, and perhaps so late as the earlier years of Henry the Seventh. 1485-1500. In the struggle of dynasties from which England suffered so severely during the fifteenth century, the drama of ambition shifted its scenes from London and York to Calais and Dublin. The appointment of Richard, Duke of York, as Lord Lieutenant in 1449, presented him an opportunity of creating a Yorkist party among the nobles and people of the Pale. This able and ambitious prince possessed in his hereditary estate resources equal to great enterprises. He was in the first place the representative of the third son of Edward III. On the death of his cousin the Earl of March, in 1422, he became heir to that property and title. He was Duke of York, Earl of March, and Earl of Rutland, in England, Earl of Ulster and Earl of Cork, Lord of Connaught, Clare, Meath, and Trim, in Ireland. He had been, twice Regent of France, during the minority of Henry, where he upheld the cause of the Plantagenet King with signal ability. By the peace concluded at Tours, between England, France, and Burgundy, in 1444, he was enabled to return to England, where the king had lately come of age, and begun to exhibit the weak, though amiable disposition which led to his ruin. The events of the succeeding two or three years were calculated to expose Henry to the odium of his subjects and the machinations of his enemies. Town after town and province after province were lost in France, the regent Somerset returned to experience the full force of this unpopularity. The royal favourite, Suffolk, was banished, pursued, and murdered at sea. The king's uncles, Cardinal Beaufort and the Duke of Gloucester, were removed by death, so that every sign and circumstance of the time whispered encouragement to the ambitious duke. When, therefore, the Irish lieutenancy was offered, in order to separate him from his partisans, he at first refused it. Subsequently, however, he accepted, on conditions dictated by himself, calculated to leave him wholly his own master. These conditions, reduced to writing in the form of an indenture between the king and the duke, extended his lieutenancy to a period of ten years, allowed him, besides the entire revenue of Ireland, an annual subsidy from England, full power to let the king's land, to levy and maintain soldiers, to place or displace all officers, to appoint a deputy, and to return to England at his pleasure. On these terms the ex-regent of France undertook the government of the English settlement in Ireland. Arrived at Dublin, the Duke, as in his day he was always called, employed himself rather to strengthen his party than to extend the limits of his government. 
soon after his arrival a son was born to him, and baptized with great pomp in the castle. James, 5th Earl of Ormond, and Thomas, 8th Earl of Desmond, were invited to stand as sponsors. In the line of policy indicated by this choice, he steadily persevered during his whole connection with Ireland, which lasted till his death, in 1460. Alternately he named a butler and a Geraldine as his deputy, and although he failed ultimately to win the Earl of Ormond from the traditional party of his family, he secured the attachment of several of his kinsmen. Stirring events in England, the year after his appointment, made it necessary for him to return immediately. The unpopularity of the administration which had banished him had rapidly augmented. The French king had recovered the whole of Normandy, for four centuries annexed to the English crown. Nothing but Calais remained of all the continental possessions which the Plantagenets had inherited, and which Henry V had done so much to strengthen and extend. Domestic abuses aggravated the discontent arising from the foreign defeats. The Bishop of Chichester, one of the ministers, was set upon and slain by a mob at Portsmouth. Twenty thousand men of Kent, under the command of Jack Cade, an Anglo-Irishman, who had given himself out as a son of the last Earl of March, who died in the Irish government twenty-five years before, marched upon London. They defeated a royal force at Sevenoaks, and the city opened its gate at the summons of Cade. The Kentish men took possession of Southwark, while their Irish leader, for three days, entering the city every morning, compelled the mayor and the judges to sit in the guild-hall, tried and sentenced Lord Say to death, who, with his son-in-law Cromer, sheriff of Kent, was accordingly executed. Every evening, as he had promised the citizens, he retired with his guards across the river, preserving the strictest order among them. But the royalists were not idle, and when, on the fourth morning, Cade attempted, as usual, to enter London proper, he found the bridge of Southwark barricaded and defended by a strong force under the Lord Scales. After six hours' hard fighting, his raw levies were repulsed, and many of them accepted a free pardon tendered to them in a moment of defeat. Cade retired with the remainder on Deptford and Rochester, but gradually abandoned by them, he was surprised, half famished, in a garden at Hayfield, and put to death. His captor claimed and received the large reward of a thousand marks offered for his head. This was in the second week of July. On the first of September, news was brought to London that the Duke of York had suddenly landed from Ireland. His partisans eagerly gathered round him at his castle of Fotheringay, but for five years longer, by the repeated concessions of the gentle-minded Henry, and the interposition of powerful mediators, the actual War of the Roses was postponed. It is beyond our province to follow the details of that ferocious struggle, which was waged almost incessantly from 1455 till 1471, from the first battle of St. Albans till the final battle at Tewkesbury. We are interested in it mainly as it connects the fortunes of the Anglo-Irish earls with one or other of the dynasties, and their fortunes again with the benefit or disadvantage of their allies and relatives among our native princes. Of the transactions in England it may be sufficient to say that the Duke of York, after his victory at St. Albans in 55, was declared Lord Protector of the Realm during Henry's imbecility, that the next year the King recovered and the Protector's office was abolished, that in 57 both parties stood at bay, in 58 an insecure peace was patched up between them, in 59 they appealed to arms, the Yorkists gained a victory at Blorheath, but being defeated at Lutterford, Duke Richard, with one of his sons, fled for safety into Ireland. It was the month of November when the fugitive Duke arrived to resume the Lord Lieutenancy which he had formerly exercised. 
Legally, his commission, for those who recognized the authority of King Henry, had expired four months before, as it bore date from July 5, 1449, but it is evident the majority of the Anglo-Irish received him as a prince of their own election, rather than as an ordinary viceroy. He held, soon after his arrival, a parliament at Dublin, which met by adjournment at Drogheda the following spring. The English parliament, having declared him, his duchess, sons, and principal adherents, traitors, and writs to that effect having been sent over, the Irish parliament passed a declaratory act, 1460, making the service of all such writs treason against their authority, it having been ever customary in their land to receive and entertain strangers with due respect and hospitality. Under this law, an emissary of the Earl of Ormond, upon whom English writs against the fugitives were found, was executed as a traitor. This independent Parliament confirmed the Duke in his office, made it high treason to imagine his death, and taking advantage of the favourable conjuncture of affairs, they further declared that the inhabitants of Ireland could only be bound by laws made in Ireland, that no writs were of force unless issued under the great seal of Ireland, that the realm had of ancient right its own Lord Constable and Earl Marshal, by whom alone trials for treason alleged to have been committed in Ireland could be conducted. In the same busy spring, the Earl of Warwick, so celebrated as the king-maker of English history, sailed from Calais, of which he was constable, with the Channel Fleet, of which he was also in command, and doubling the land's end of England, arrived at Dublin to concert measures for another rising in England. He found the Duke at Dublin, surrounded by his earls and his homagers, and measures were soon concerted between them. An appeal to the English nation was prepared at this conference, charging upon Henry's advisers that they had written to the French king to besiege Calais, and to the Irish princes to expel the English settlers. The loyalty of the fugitive lords, and their readiness to prove their innocence before their sovereign, were stoutly asserted. Emissaries were dispatched in every direction, troops were raised, Warwick soon after landed in Kent, always strongly pro-Yorkist, defeated the royalists at Northampton in July, and the Duke, reaching London in October, a compromise was agreed to, after much discussion, in which Henry was to have the crown for life, while the Duke was acknowledged as his successor, and created President of his Council. We have frequently remarked in our history the recurrence of conflicts between the north and south of the island. The same thing is distinctly traceable through the annals of England down to a quite recent period. Whether difference of race, or of admixture of race, may not lie at the foundation of such long-living enmities, we will not here attempt to discuss. Such, however, is the fact. Queen Margaret had fled northward after the defeat of Northampton towards the Scottish border, from which she now returned at the head of twenty thousand men. The Duke advanced rapidly to meet her, and engaging with a far inferior force at Wakefield, was slain in the field, or beheaded after the battle. All now seemed lost to the Yorkist party, when young Edward, son of Duke Richard, advancing from the marches of Wales at the head of an army equal in numbers to the Royalists, won, in the month of February, 1461, the battles of Mortimer's Cross and Barnet, and was crowned at Westminster in March, by the title of Edward IV. The sanguinary battle of Towton, soon after his coronation, where thirty-eight thousand dead were reckoned by the heralds, confirmed his title and established his throne. Even the subsequent hostility of Warwick, though it compelled him once to surrender himself a prisoner, and once to fly the country, did not finally transfer the sceptre to his rival. Warwick was slain in the Battle of Tewkesbury, 1471, 
the Lancastrian Prince Edward was put to death on the field, and his unhappy father was murdered in prison. Two years later, Henry, Earl of Richmond, grandson of Catherine, Queen of Henry V, and Owen ap Tudor, the only remaining leader capable of rallying the beaten party, was driven into exile in France, from which he returned fourteen years afterwards to contest the crown with Richard III. In these English wars the only Irish nobleman who sustained the Lancastrian cause was James, fifth Earl of Ormond. He had been created by Henry, Earl of Wiltshire, during his father's lifetime, in the same year in which his father stood sponsor in Dublin for the son of the Duke. He succeeded to the Irish title and estates in 1451, held a foremost rank in almost all the engagements from the Battle of St. Albans to that of Towton, in which he was taken prisoner and executed by order of Edward IV. His blood was declared attainted, and his estates forfeited, but a few years later both the title and property were restored to Sir John Butler, the sixth Earl. On the eve of the open rupture between the Roses, another name intimately associated with Ireland disappeared from the role of the English nobility. The veteran Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, in the eightieth year of his age, accepted the command of the English forces in France, retook the city of Bordeaux, but fell in attack on the French camp at Châtillon in the subsequent campaign, 1453. His son, Lord Lyle, was slain at the same time, defending his father's body. Among other consequences which ensued, the Talbot interest in Ireland suffered from the loss of so powerful a patron at the English court. We have only to add that at Wakefield, and in most of the other engagements, there was a strong Anglo-Irish contingent in the Yorkist ranks, and a smaller one, chiefly tenants of Ormond, on the opposite side. Many writers complain that the House of York drained the pale of its defenders, and thus still further diminished the resources of the English interest in Ireland. In the last forty years of the fifteenth century, the history of the pale is the biography of the family of the Geraldines. We must make some brief mention of the remarkable men to whom we refer. Thomas, eighth Earl of Desmond, for his services to the House of York, was appointed Lord Deputy in the first years of Edward the Fourth. He had naturally made himself obnoxious to the Ormond interest, but still more so to the Talbots, whose leader in civil contest was Sherwood, Bishop of Meath, for some years, in despite of the Geraldines, Lord Chancellor. Between him and Desmond there existed the bitterest animosity. In 1464, nine of the deputy's men were slain in a broil in Fingal, by tenants or servants of the bishop. The next year each party repaired to London to vindicate himself and criminate his antagonist. The bishop seems to have triumphed, for in 1466 John Tiptoft, Earl of Worcester, called in England for his barbarity to Lancastrian prisoners, the butcher, superseded Desmond. The movement of Thaddeus O'Brien, already related, the same year, gave Tiptoft grounds for accusing Desmond, Kildare, Sir Edward Plunkett, and others of treason. On this charge he summoned them before him at Drogheda in the following February. Kildare wisely fled to England, where he pleaded his innocence successfully with the king. But Desmond and Plunkett, overconfident of their own influence, repaired to Drogheda, were tried, condemned, and beheaded. Their execution took place on the 15th day of February, 1467. It is instructive to add that Tiptoff, a few years later, underwent the fate in England, without exciting a particle of the sympathy felt for Desmond. Thomas, 7th Earl of Kildare, succeeded on his safe return from England to more than the power of his late relative. The office of Chancellor, after a sharp struggle, was taken from Bishop Sherwood, 
and confirmed to him for life by an act of the twelfth, Edward III. He had been named Lord Justice after Tiptoff's recall in 1467, and four years later exchanged the title for that of Lord Deputy to the young Duke of Clarence, the nominal lieutenant. In 1475, on some change of court favour, the supreme power was taken from him, and conferred on the old enemy of his house, the Bishop of Meath. Kildare died two years later, having signalised his latter days by founding an Anglo-Irish order of chivalry, called the Brothers of St. George. This order was to consist of thirteen persons of the highest rank within the pale, one hundred and twenty mounted archers and forty horsemen, attended by forty pages. The officers were to assemble annually in Dublin, on St. George's Day, to elect their captain from their own number. After having existed twenty years, the Brotherhood was suppressed by the jealousy of Henry the Seventh in 1494. Gerald, eighth Earl of Kildare, called in the Irish annals Geraint Moore, or the Great, succeeded his father in 1477. He had the gratification of ousting Sherwood from the government the following year, and having it transferred to himself. For nearly forty years he continued the central figure among the Anglo-Irish, and as his family were closely connected by marriage with the McCarthys, the O'Carrolls of Eli, the O'Connors of Offaly, O'Neills and O'Donnells, he exercised immense influence over the affairs of all the provinces. In his tune, moreover, the English interest, under the auspices of an undisturbed dynasty, and a cautious, politic prince, Henry the Seventh, began by slow and almost imperceptible degrees to recover the unity and compactness it had lost ever since the Red Earl's death. End of chapter 7. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.